0: You know, this church, uh, it's, it's hard to say how much it means to me in these last three. For the last few years, I've been praying and making plans about what the Lord would have me do with this season of my life. Some of you know the details of my struggle more than others. Trying to discern what God's will is is difficult uh, for us sometimes because we make it that way, because we fall into a line of thinking that there's some mysterious plan God has for us that we need to discover. We make knowing his will difficult because we often can't see the obvious will of God that's right in front of us. We make plans, even kingdom-focused plans, and we get frustrated. The truth is that God's will, his plan for my life, is very clear in Scripture. It's not a mystery. It's, it's clear. God's will for me is to love him, to really, really love him. It's my first responsibility to love him. And my second responsibility is to love you and those that are in my daily path, my neighbors. So when I do these two things, then I am in his perfect will for my life. And only then am I able to do the next right thing, which is his will what he wills for me. Loving him and making much of him every day is what we were created for. That's why he made us. That's the plan. That's his revealed will now and for the next billion years. Eternity. To love him and make much of him. So everything I'm going to share with you today, i probably preached to myself a couple hundred times over the last several months. I want you and I, you and me, to love Jesus more, but specifically on his terms. Our glorious text today, before I read the text, I want to say about some men in here that have spoken in my life as I've made these decisions not to go to the Middle East at this time in my life. Uh, I would even say the Lord prevented me. I've made a lot of plans. And I had breakfast with Tommy, and he said something to me specific Jimmy, my son, who's one of my best counselors, said a lot of things to me. Richard said a lot of things to me. Others in here, Greg, others, Bobby. So this community, this shows me how important it is to be in community where people are speaking into my life this way. Uh, I'd be afraid to think what I would have done had I not had that. Our text today is from Mark 12, 28 through 34. Mark 12, 28 through 34. <laughs> now, this is not an overly complicated text, but at least at the age of 55, maybe I've been missing it. Starting in verse 28, and one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, Jesus and the religious leaders, and seeing that he answered them well, asked them, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Pray with me about this this morning. Father, thank you. For the truth of your word, Lord, I know that your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword dividing to the joints and the marrows, the soul and the spirit. Lord, you know how nervous I am. But Lord, I trust you. I love you. I pray that what's to be said today would be from you, from your holy word. Lord, teach us to love you in a real and abiding way. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for my friends that are here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So there's a lot happening in our text leading up to Jesus' encounter with this particular scribe. Jesus had cleansed the temple leading up to this text with a whip to remove the pretenders from his father's house. Mark also writes about several other encounters between Jesus and the chief priest the scribes and the elders, the religious group, the people that really thought they had loving God down pat. These encounters reveal that the religious leaders were missing the most important point about the God that they claimed to know and love. So we're going to consider six questions today so we can kind of determine if we really love God. We'll go through this text and we'll be able to ask ourselves at the end of it, do I really love him? Do I really know him? Question number one is, who is this God of verse 29 that says, love me? He commands us to love him, so it's not an option. I'm going to list off several attributes from Scripture. The first one is God has no equal. He's infinite and eternally self-existing. He never changes. He's holy. He needs nothing. He's completely happy within himself, triune Godhead. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's everywhere. He's all wise. He's faithful. He is good. He is just. He's merciful. He's loving and gracious. God is unique and exclusive, and he will not share his glory with anyone else. There really aren't any other gods. Anything else that you would put forward would be an idol, whether it's in your imagination or a wooden pole or something on your screen, on your phone. Idols. So the reality is God absolutely is. He really is, and he exists. I'm not arguing today about whether or not God exists. My proposition today is, what do we do about this response to loving him? That's, that's what we're talking about today. So I have two quick scripture references to back up these attributes. There's lots of scriptures to back them up. But in Isaiah 46, 9 through 10, the Lord is speaking through Isaiah, and he says, remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. The second one is from Exodus 34, 6-7, and it's when Moses is going back up to the mountain to have those Ten Commandments redone after the golden calf incident. And Moses wants to see the glory of the Lord, This is the Lord's response to him after saying, you can't see it all, but I'm going to put you in this rock cleft and I'll just pass by and you can see my backside. This This is the text. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. 1,500 years later, the inspired writer of Hebrews in chapter 1, verse 3, wrote this about Jesus. He said, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. He upholds the universe by the power of His word. After making purifications for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So what Moses and Isaiah wrote about God, we see in Jesus who is God. Jesus is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, millions, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sins. This is the God we are to love and be devoted to. Our second question is, so what kind of love is Jesus speaking about in our text? So the word in our text, love, here means to cherish, to have a fond affection for, Take pleasure in another, and it also has a connotation of to prove one's love. So I want to describe for you from Luke 7, 36 through 48. It's a very long text, but it's a really powerful one in my life. Luke 7, 36 through 48. Jesus is going to have dinner at a Pharisee's house named Simon. And as Jesus is reclining at the table, which would mean kind of laying on his side, small short table, eating, his feet are out to the side. The door to the Pharisee's house is open and in comes a woman. It says a woman of the city, which really means a promiscuous woman, maybe an adulterous woman, maybe a prostitute. Her hair's down. That's a bad sign in that culture in that day. Actually, it's still a bad sign in that culture today. She comes in and she gets to Jesus' feet and she starts to weep and cry and wash the Lord Jesus' feet with her tears and wipe it with her hair. She has this large, expensive Jar of ointment, perfumed ointment, expensive, and she pours it on him and she anoints his feet. Well, the Pharisee who had invited him is thinking in his mind, Hey, this guy, he can't be a prophet because if he knew who was touching him, he would know she's a sinner. Jesus looks at the Pharisee and says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he says, Say it, teacher. There were a moneylender, a banker in our terms, who had two people he loaned money to. One, 500 days wages, almost two years worth of wages. I can calculate that in mind, what that means to me. One owed 50 days wages, and they couldn't pay the guy back. Couldn't pay him back. So the moneylender is merciful and kind and gracious, and he forgives the debts, both of them. And he asks Simon, which one's going to love the banker more or the moneylender more? And Simon says, I suppose the one who was forgiven the greater debt. And Jesus says, well, you've judged rightly. And he says, you know what? When I came in, you didn't give me any water for my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil. You didn't even give me a kiss, Simon. But this lady, whose sins are many, whose sins are many, has not stopped washing my feet with her tears and anointing me. And he looks at the lady and says, your faith has saved you. You're forgiven. I think what Jesus is trying to say there, the contrast is, don't think too little of your sin, like the Pharisee who probably thought he was okay. Maybe he had little sins. Jesus is saying, no, we're all like the woman. We're all like her prior to Christ. This is a beautiful example of the love and devotion that is a result of the understanding of of Jesus forgiving us of our sins. She had many sins. I feel like the woman periodically. I feel like the Pharisee periodically. She needed relief from her sinful lifestyle so much she didn't care what others thought about her. She broke all the social norms to come see Jesus and to be next to him. I mean, you just it's have a hard time understanding how big of a deal this would have been for her to do this. Her love for Jesus was visible for all to see. Love for God comes from being absolutely stunned and overwhelmed by what he would do for us in forgiving us and accepting us into his kingdom and his family. Here's another view of loving God from Luke's writings, chapter 14. And I'll just read this to us, 1425 through 26. Now great crowds accompanied Jesus, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children, and brothers, and sisters, and yes, even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Now, Jesus isn't telling us to hate those that we actually love. He's using hyperbole to illustrate the depth and the extent of our love toward him, what it should be. Our love for him should eclipse, shadow out, obliterate in comparison to our love for him. I can't love my wife more than I love Jesus. That's what the text is saying. Loving God, the Father, and Jesus, the Son, is just not about saying the right things or having the right doctrinal viewpoints. It's not about wearing the right clothes or being in the right place. Loving God is about devotion to him, seeing and savoring him, and finding him to be everything for you. Everything for you in Jesus. Loving God takes action on our part. It takes reading his word every day to see who he is and who we are in Christ if we're Christians. If you're not a Christian, you read it and you find out who you are without Christ. A very scary proposition. It takes deep thought, constant prayer, and a genuine desire to kill sin in our lives. So let's go back to our text now, Mark 12, 28. A scribe approaches Jesus and It says, and one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that Jesus answered them well, meaning the religious leaders, the scribe says, which commandment is the most important of all? So the way I look at it, he's saying, Jesus, what's the bottom line to these 613 commands that I know probably by heart? I need to know what's the most important one? Which one do all these others hang on? So, a, a scribe is important to know. A scribe is someone who's an expert in interpreting scripture meticulously. They would copy and recopy the scriptures. This is a person that probably had memorized all five books of the Torah, the Old Testament. But this scribe asked the most important question of his life, and really of our lives. Notice that unlike the other leaders, this guy comes by himself. He's heard all the commotion. He's coming by himself because he's got a genuine question. Or what looks to me into the text like a more genuine question than the people who are trying to trick Jesus. Jesus, seeing the scribe's genuineness, chooses to answer the scribe clearly and concisely. Didn't give a veiled answer like he does sometimes. Why, Why is that? Because this is the right question. This is the right question and the one that the other leaders were not asking and then weren't seeking to really know. It's a question of the heart, and it's the only question that matters. So the answer that Jesus gives is actually from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 through 5. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. So the Jews call this scripture the Shema. Shema means to hear. And it's said out loud every morning and every evening, even till this day, if you're Jewish. But Jesus adds in another Old Testament scripture to the Shema. And he says, and he pulls it from Leviticus 19, 18. It says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus' answer is obvious, because they're doing something like this every day. And it's also breathtaking. It's as it's if Jesus is finally saying, he's saying finally a man with the only question that matters, and the answer has been right in front of the Jewish leaders the whole time. Jesus, who is God, was right in front of them, and they were not loving him as God. Jesus said about the Jewish leaders in John 8, 42, If God were your father, you would love me, because I came from him and I am here. What's crazy is that these leaders would quote the Shema every morning and every evening as part of their duty, part of their routine, but Jesus is making the point that we cannot love God when we have a wrong understanding of him or when we're in isolation from other image bearers. They go together. Our love for God must be expressed in our relationships with other people. Unless the scribe sees Jesus as his Lord and Savior, then obeying this commandment to love God is impossible. And it's the same for you and I. It's also important to remember that Jesus fulfilled this command and all of God's law perfectly. He loved the Father perfectly. Our third question today is, how can you and I love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength? And here, of course, we're not going to spend a lot of time on those four words. It's everything about you. Everything your, everything, your core being, who you are, and everything you have influence and control over. How can we love God that way? And I think, too, I want to point out that as a Christian, we have to always remember the Lord doesn't ask us to do something. He doesn't give us a command unless we can actually obey it. So where does this love begin? Of course, it begins with God. First John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. And it starts with his adopting us. Now, we say things like saved, born again, regenerated, converted, all that other jargon, but it's really adoption. For you and I to really love God, the God who created us, we have to understand that we're redeemed and adopted. So our Lord initiates all this, adoption, into his family, and we respond in faith and trust to the Lord Jesus. Our adoption, of course, is not based on our our merit or good reputation. We all had a big L on our heads. Losers. I don't care how good you were, how well you thought you were. In fact, before God in love chose you, you were dead in your sins and trespasses against him. Your sins proved, my sins proved just how undeserving we were. We were traitors. We were traitors against the God that created us. Ephesians 2.12 says we were lost and without hope in the world and strangers to God. You and I were children of wrath. And at our death, we would have spent eternity separated from God and all that is good had he not saved us. There's the but God part there in Ephesians that we've been preaching about, Greg and Richard. But God intervened through Jesus Christ and chose you and called you to be his son or daughter. He knows everything about you and picked you anyway. <laughs> How about that? That's that's overwhelming if you park on that for a minute. He knew every rotten thing about me. Joe, come with me. I wasn't looking for God the day I got saved. He was looking for me. Overwhelming. He adopted me. He adopted you if you know him. So who are you now? Who are you, if you're a professing Christian, who are you right now? Who does the king of the universe say you are right now? He says you're his adopted child. Adopted child. The father loves you like he loves Jesus. That's another one we could park on for a long time. Overwhelming thought. He loves you now as his child like he loves the Lord Jesus. Overwhelming So for you and I to obey the command to love the Father and Jesus, we must know in the core of our being who we are in Christ. We need to know that now. Believing what God says about you makes it a whole lot easier to not worry about what other people say about you. That's a trick. That's a secret. You should get that. The Bible says what's true. Other people don't always say what's true about you. Listen to the Word of God. Read your Bible. Believe it. Pray daily for understanding about who you are in Christ. So consider, with thinking about adoption, consider this reality. This is how I process this. The Father planned your adoption. Jesus paid for your adoption. And the Holy Spirit applies your adoption initially and daily. So here's what I mean. Three scriptures. Ephesians 1.5 says, He, God the Father, predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. The Father planned your adoption. Galatians 4, 4 through 7 says, God sent forth his son born of a woman, born under the law to redeem, to pay the price for our sins, those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Mm, Jesus paid for your adoption. Abba, Father, an endearing, kind, intimate, loving term that we can approach God with. Romans 8, 15 through 17 says, but we've received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Holy Spirit applies your adoption. So I think of adoption as the condition, my state of being that ties together my justification, my sanctification, and my future glorification. It's all wrapped up in the fact that God said you and made you his son or daughter. Have you seen this recent social media video of this seven or eight-year-old little girl? My wife showed it to me, and it just, it's overwhelming. It's, it's, it's two parents, one on each side of a little girl, and they give her a present, and she starts to unwrap it. And she gets to it, and they say, read it. And she reads it, and she goes, I'm I'm adopted. I'm adopted, and she just is just weeping. I'm adopted? You're adopting me? And the parents kneel down beside her, and they say, we love you, and she's crying, I love you too. And it's just its such a, of course it doesn't paint the picture of what happens to us in Christ, but boy, it's a good example of what happens. And when you get your mind around that you're adopted, it changes the way you behave. This little girl knew in that moment that those parents had picked her. It's powerful. When we're adopted, we get Jesus' perfect life credited to us when we repent and believe on him. We're redeemed, we're bought back, and ransomed by God. God's anger at our sin and rebellion is taken away by Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross. On our behalf, we are in God's family. We're not on the outside anymore. Romans 8, 31, 32 says, God is for us. He who gave his own son, how will he not graciously give us all things? He gave us his son. God's for us. Now, if you and I are adopted sons and daughters of the king of the universe, we're going to want to love him. That's the response. We should be troubled when that's not our response or we encounter a professing Christian who doesn't have that type of response. When we know who we are as a son or daughter of the king of the universe, we, we want to love him. Those who've been forgiven much love much, like the woman in Luke 7. Here's another amazing part, and I'm going to read this to us, but it's another amazing part that makes loving God a reality. It's in Hebrews chapter 10, 15-18. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're a believer, God's laws are written on your hearts and your minds. Going back to the prayer, the Shema, love him with your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Yes, we really can love God. We, 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 we can really love him and we want to obey Jesus just like that child I described to you. We understand the impact of Jesus' sacrifice and our adoption. First John 3, 1 says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. Question four today is, since we are adopted and have God's spirit in us, how? How do we love God? I'm running the risk here of being very simple, but simply put, we believe what God says about himself, and we believe what God says about us in his word In the Bible, Jesus said in John 14, 15, If you love me, you will obey my commands. You will obey my commands. Love for him is what compels us to obey him. Love him and you will obey him. It's not the other way around. Obedience by itself doesn't produce love, that produces tyranny. We obey his commands with great joy and great satisfaction. We find Jesus to be all we'll ever need. Now, there's this famous quote from John Piper, and yes, we had to have a John Piper quote this morning, but it's so true. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Ladies and gentlemen, I just think that's true. I just think it's true. Loving God and being satisfied with him glorifies him. It honors him. Be satisfied with all that the Father and the Son are to you. So if everything I've covered today is true, and I could argue vehemently that it is, we come to question five, and question five is, why do professing Christians struggle with loving God and obeying Jesus? Why? Why, why, why? Because, another simple answer, we choose to sin. We choose to sin, and sin clouds our view of the Lord Jesus that's what happens when I sin I go oh things get kind of cloudy we violate Ephesians 4:30, 30 uh, chapter 4 verse 30 which says do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption yes as a Christian your sins as a child of God grieve the Holy Spirit of God in you that's a very frightening thought it's a very frightening thought to me I hope it is to you Sin is what we do when we replace our security in God and prefer other things. If you read Romans 1 when you got home today, you would see they willingly gave up their knowledge of God and they preferred other things, images of people, beasts, other things, anything. You could pick a topic. Sin is what we do when we replace our security in God and prefer other things. When we don't obey Jesus, then we're not loving him on his terms. 1 John 5, 2 through 4 tells us, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. And his commandments are not burdensome. So how can we have consistent patterns of sin in our lives if loving Jesus is not burdensome? How can that be? It's either we really are not God's adopted son or daughter, or we don't know who we are as God's adopted son or daughter. It's one or the other. Romans 6 says, as God's child, we can say no to sin now. We actually can say no to sin, which means if if I'm not his child, all I can do is say yes. That was my experience before Christ. Romans 7 says, we still have a sin fight on our hands as God's child. Romans 8 says, but I'm adopted. But I'm adopted and that Jesus has defeated my sin and rescued me. I would encourage you to read Romans at least twice a month, the whole book. Go through it twice a month. Go home today and read Romans 8. So a sub-question of number five is, has something cut in, someone or something cut in on you or bewitched you like the Apostle Paul said about the Galatian Christians. I'll read that to us, Galatians 4.9. Paul says, formerly, he's talking to Christians. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods, but now that you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Have you ever asked yourself that kind of question? Maybe not exactly like that. Like, how could I do that again? How could these Galatian Christians turn back? How could we turn back at times? So when a child of God sins, it's because we forget or we don't take seriously in that moment of sin exactly what our adoption means and the great price that was paid. I think that if I had the, the Lord Jesus in front of me, or I could had him on the cross in front of me, or anything you can think of, I probably wouldn't sin anymore if I had that ever-present reality in front of me, but that's not the case. He has, we have his spirit in us, and we can say no to sin. The way I think about this is, do you remember just enough of your life before Jesus so that you stay anchored to the present reality of your adoption in Christ? I'm not saying wallow in sin and guilt. I'm saying, do you remember how it was before, you, before Christ saved you? I do. And I go, yeah, ooh, Lord Jesus, thank you. It's, it's, it helps me, not guilt and shame, but the reality of what I was before. 1 John 3, 8 says, Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot go on sinning because he's been born of God. So it's frightening to realize that when we sin, we're actually in alignment with Satan. Think about that for a minute. When you sin as a child of God, you're going, Jesus, you're not enough. I'm going to go do this. This is more meaningful in the moment. Outrageous. Outrageous. Sin never delivers what it promises, does it? I can't think of a single sin I've ever committed that's worked out well. But in the moment, we get cloudy. We get deluded. We think it's okay. Sin's not our master anymore. It's not. So what do you and I choose to worship daily? The sovereign God of the universe? Or distorted views of sex, money, power. Most sins fall into those categories, I think. The ever-present reality that we've been adopted and that we are forever God's child, it's the key to the Christian life. It's the key to the Christian life, knowing who you are in Christ. So focus on your devotion to God because He's adopted you and everything else in your life will begin to make more sense. won't we'll be perfect. But when you start weeding out sin in your life and sinful habits, you'll see more clearly. You'll see more clearly. Our last question today is how can, how can we really love others in a way that shows forth the love of God, that shows that we love God? Jesus' answer in Mark twelve thirty one: he says, You shall, you shall, not an option, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So what Jesus, I think, is saying here is be to others everything that I am to you. Be to others everything I am to you. Be Jesus to others. It sounds kind of churchy to say that, but it's true. If I help you, a church member, or if I help a non-church member, my motivation should be because Jesus has rescued me eternally from his wrath and adopted me. That should be my part of my motivation for helping. We show love and gratitude to God by loving his other image bearers, lost and saved. Think about Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 with me. This is one of those verses that you have to kind of stew on a minute. He says, therefore, Paul's writing, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice to God. Gave himself up, walk in love, Fragrant offering, sacrifice. So imitating Jesus (laughs) means loving others the way Jesus does. Not that hard. I mean, that's a good, great. We understand it, but living, it's a different story. Will I give up myself for you? Will you give up yourself for me? Can I be a fragrant aroma to you in a time of need? Can you be that way to me? Yes, you can, because God's Spirit's in you. God's children... We are to give up our time, our resources, our money to help others, just like the story of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. It sounds simple, but it's really hard sometimes, isn't it? Because we're all selfish sometimes, even as God's children. We go, no, that's mine. I earned that. That's how we think. We mistakenly think that what we own Or what we possess, we own it. We mistakenly think that what's in my possession, I actually own. Nope, you actually don't. You'll go to your grave with nothing in the coffin but you. Someone else will live in your house one day. Someone else will spend your money if you leave it. Give it away right now while the time's good. Store up treasure in heaven. We can love God with our resources. When we understand our adoption... By the most high God, he's given us the Lord Jesus. We, we won't be selfish. It'll stop. Loving others means you and I have to be willing to be taken advantage of. Not a very popular statement, is it? It means occasionally there's going to be a Judas in your life. I've had a few. Got one right now today. Not in this room. Not in this room. <laughs> but I got one today in my life. Betrayal. We keep loving. We keep loving. We don't pull back. Loving others means saying hard things in love to each other. Loving others is a very messy process. But God wants us to love others with the love he has for us. I think a key verse here is Philippians 2.3. It says, In humility, count others more significant than yourself. Hmm. Count others more significant than myself. That's not how we normally walk around thinking, is it? Think of others first. Loving God by loving your neighbor, it starts with your spouse, if you have one, your children, if you have them, your parents, your family, your co-workers, and church folks. I will ask you to turn in your Bible to 1 John 4.7. 1 John 4.7, we'll read that together. First John 4, 7 through 13. John the Apostle writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. And propitiation means taking away God's wrath, appeasing the wrath of God. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another, for no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So there's a work going on. But I thought I would tell you today how I apply these verses. What you just read, this is how I apply it personally. If I'm not loving my wife well, if I'm not loving her well, the root cause of that failure to love is my failure to love God well. It's not that complicated, is it? If I'm not loving you well, the root cause is I'm not loving God well. Every harsh word I've ever spoken to my wife and every sin I've ever committed in my life can be traced right back to my failure to not love God on his terms, to not love Jesus as he commands. And I'll tell you, if you're married or if you're single, I'm going to tell you what my wife's greatest need is this morning. You know what her greatest need is this morning? For me to love Jesus pursue holiness, to be satisfied with all that Jesus is for me, to me, then and only then can I possibly love her with godly love, right? It's that way in every relationship. When you and I love Jesus as he commands on his terms, then we're going to repent quickly. We will, we will, and seek reconciliation when we offend one another. It's highly likely as this church goes on I'm going to offend somebody in here. Highly likely. Or you might offend me. In that moment, when you get two Jesus lovers together, they're going to they're make up pretty quick. I'm not saying it always works out that way, but love and devotion to the Lord Jesus does solve most relationship problems if both people really profess to know Christ. Loving others, ladies and gentlemen, is a sure sign that you love God. Don't miss this fact. If you do, You're going to live in isolation as a stunted Christian the rest of your days on this earth. We can't live on an island. I need you to love me, and I need to love you in a deep and abiding way that shows forth the glory of God. That's why he created us. That's why he saved us and left us here. He could have saved us and taken us right to heaven, right? He didn't. I've asked that question a lot myself. I am his image bearer. You are his image bearer. We were made to do what we're talking about today, love him and love each other. This is how people know who God is. My words are cheap if I'm not loving you well. We were made to love God, and we become like him when we exhibit his loving character to one another. What would happen, what would really happen if you and I soaked our minds in the word of God every day, the Bible, every day. And we turned Jesus' words in Mark 12, 28 through 34 into a prayer. By the way, that's a great way to pray. Praying God's words, you cannot go wrong. We turn in prayer. So here's my prayer. You might have your own. But what if, what if I prayed this way or you prayed this way? This is, this is what I wrote. Heavenly Father, you are my Lord and my God. You are the one true God. I love you. Lord, my God, with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, and with all my strength. Lord, today I ask you to show me who my neighbors are so that I can love them in your holy name. Lord, you said there's no greater commandment than this. Lord, I ask you to help me to love you more every day so that those around me may know you and glorify your name. That is God's revealed will for your life. You're struggling with anything else? we got to get this down right first. This has got to be right. I encourage you to pray like that. If we prayed like that, God's going to answer us because that's what we're made for. That's his revealed will. There's no questioning it. This text is pretty straightforward. That's his will for our lives. So if this commandment's not fulfilled in us, frankly, our entire lives are out of order. They're out of order, they're out of God's will, and we're missing the entire point of our Christian existence if we don't get this part right. We're missing the whole point of being adopted sons and daughters of the Most High God. You know, living and breathing this commandment, it really enables us to daily face life and one day to face our death. Loving God above all else means we will finish this life well. We will finish this life well. And it prepares us for eternity with our Father and the Lord Jesus. We're in a preparation phase, ladies and gentlemen. We're not here for ourselves, we're here to love God on His terms. So we're going to quickly look at Jesus' response to the scribe. Jesus replied to the scribe in verse 34. Jesus says, You're not far from the kingdom. You're not far from the kingdom? This is a guy who's an expert in Scripture. Jesus is saying that, wow. So he just told the expert in the Jewish law and the Scripture that knowing and believing these two commandments was not enough to be included in the kingdom. Jesus is saying to the scribe that he must actually practice loving God and others. In effect, Jesus is saying to the scribe, the God of the kingdoms right here in front of you. Jesus is saying, love me and you would love the Father. And you would be in the kingdom so here's the thing here's the thing not loving God on his terms is evil it's evil and it's an outrage a cosmic outrage if you will if we don't love him on his terms are you in God's kingdom this morning as his adopted son or daughter or are you just close are you just close this is a life and death question. It really is. is your, maybe your heart's pounding because you are God's child and you realize hearing this text you, you want to love him more. Or maybe because the Lord's convicting and reminding you who you really are. Or maybe you've realized this morning someone or something, some habit, your job, your love for money, your phone with illicit images on it, something's cut in on you. And you need to repent this morning so that you can love God. Maybe this morning you just come to the conclusion you're really not in the kingdom. You're not his redeemed and adopted child. Well, the gospel means good news. Jesus is the gospel. He is the good news. And God is in the adoption business. God is in the adoption business. If you are outside of God's kingdom this morning, you can repent right now. Turn from pretending to love Jesus, or maybe you're open opposition to him. Maybe you're open opposition to him. Confess your sin of unbelief in the God that made you. If you can actually do that this morning, if you can actually repent and believe on the Lord Jesus this morning, you've been adopted. (laughs) You've been adopted. You've been adopted. Tell somebody if that's you this morning, Whether you're a church member, not a church member, a guest. I'm going to close this in prayer in a minute. And um, Jimmy, Greg, Tammy, and Meg are going to be in the back by the coffee pot or maybe over here when the band comes up to sing. Maybe you want someone to pray with you. It's okay to get up and do that. I know we're a church full of introverts. I get it. Maybe you let that go this morning. Let somebody pray with you, talk to you. If you're not in the kingdom... And you want to talk to somebody about that? Get up and talk to one of these trusted people this morning. We either truly love God or we don't. Pray with me. Father, your word is true. Lord, help us this morning to love you in that deep abiding way so that others around us know that people don't have to guess whether or not we really are your child. Lord, help us. Do in us what your word says. You've written, you've written on our hearts how to obey you, how to love you. Lord, help us in our minds to change the words around from obey, which means love, to love first and obey, which proves our love. Lord, we love you this morning. Pray as we sing and worship you, we make much of you. You are the king of the universe, the ultimate reality, the only thing that matters. Bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.